This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. Last year, the biggest energy tech acquisition potentially of all time happened when Inveris acquired Arseg for over $1 billion, solidifying the position as a 600-pound gorilla of energy tech. While we didn't talk a whole lot about Inveris in this episode, we did dive into the genesis of Arseg. Peter Bernard joined us this week to talk about how, as chairman, he pieced together a few companies to create the modern version of Arseg that we all know, and knowing when the right time to sell to Inveris was. Uh, we dove deep into the next chapter of his life as chairman of Data Gration uh, and all the cool stuff that they're doing in this space. Now, it's a really fascinating conversation. We already joked about getting Peter back on for part two. If you didn't know yet, on March 10th, we are hosting an event called Evolve, the next evolution of oil and gas. Uh, big thanks to Technip FMC for being the headlining sponsor. The question that we are trying to answer is what does the next evolution of oil and gas look like and what cutting edge technologies can really help us get there? Registration is completely free. Just go to digitalwildcatters.com forward slash evolve. All right. So long little intro there. Let's run into our TPH Energy Insight of the week. So BP and Chevron have invested in a geothermal technology, closely geothermal technology, with a company called Ever Technologies. They've raised uh, $40 million to build out their geothermal systems. They use a lot of horizontal drilling technology and there's hope that maybe someday they can give abandoned oil and gas wells kind of a second life. I think this is a really interesting tech, to be honest with you. Yeah. I've talked to some people that used to drill geothermal wells. I'm talking like 30, 40 years ago. They've always been chasing, you know, this infinite energy source. And if you listen to the problems that they had back in the days, you know, it was always they drill vertical wells and then have trouble with those wells plugging up and they couldn't get fluids through. And so if you look at the drilling technology that we've had in the last 10 years, the advancements in horizontal drilling does open up the imagination to, you know, this possibility of being able to drill these horizontal wells and have closed loop systems and things of that nature. You know, we have a lot of friends in the space that are you know, going over from oil and gas to geothermal, it's almost apples to apples in terms of operations. You know, if you can drill an oil well, you can drill a geothermal well. And so it's, uh, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to me to see big oil go in this direction. Yeah. Technologies like this, I mean, allows you to really escape the geological and geographical, I guess I should say, limitations of conventional geothermal systems that rely on, you know, certain areas where the tectonic plates are relatively thin and there's lots of uh, essentially hot air and steam and whatnot that's used to power those. So it's pretty promising. A lot of these are still pretty uh, in that kind of research and development phase for the most part. Uh, we're actually going to be dropping a video with uh, TPH over geothermal systems here soon. So go check that out. Also go check out TPH's eTech newsletter where we get a lot of this information and let's get right into the episode. What is going on Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. Let's get right into it. We got Peter Bernard here, executive chairman of Datagration, which you guys, uh, I'm sure, have seen by the now. Datagration is the uh, exclusive partner of the Willing Guest Startup Show for the next six months. And w I thought we knew a whole lot about energy tech. I really felt like we did. Peter walked in and just started schooling us up <laughs> on everything that's happened like the last 20 years. We've been talking about and 20 so I was just like, wait, 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 wait. Recording. let's get on the mic. Let's get on the mic. Let's start this conversation. So super excited to have you here. So thanks for taking some time to, uh, to join us. Tell us a little bit about, let's start with the datagration story and what you're doing there. And then let's just, I want to dive into everything. <laughs> I want to go into all of it. Let's go into your entire backstory. Yeah. Okay. Tell us what datagration is first. Per great. Well, well, perfect. It's good It's good to, to start with the most uh, recent and appreciate being here. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. I, uh, I'm excited about the datagration story and uh, really believe it's something unique that the industry has never seen. So, so I'll back up and say the beginning of... Uh, 2020, one of the, my partners, Ike Epley, came to me with an idea uh, about this company that worked in Austria, and it was called Oilsphere at the time, and there was a group of 12 people that had been working for about 10 years on this product and this idea, uh, which is what we ended up acquiring, but simply put, it was an open platform that allowed any disparate data, structured, unstructured, to be pulled into a data system 
where they had a scripting language uh, along with a bunch of different apps that could do any kind of engineering calculation with the semantic layer being developed by petroleum engineers. Hmm. And it was an open, it was an open data model, open database, which is, which is really unheard of because typically as, as you probably both know, mm-hmm. coming from the digital side, for you to do software, do good, good software, you have to have a fixed data model. You have, to, yep. you have to know what the data is to drive the outputs of the engineering calculations. Which has been one of the biggest issues of disparate data sources in energy tech today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, no standardization. And so, so people store it in all different forms, whether it's SQL Server, yep. you know, the, the, the basic flat files in Excel spreadsheets. Uh, they store it in their application. I mean, it, it's all over the place. MongoDB, you name it, it's everywhere. Y- you name it, it's yeah. everywhere. And so Michael Studner who was the founder of the company, uh, has been in the industry for 33 years, 34 years, master's degree petroleum engineer. He had worked at Slummer J, sold one of his products to Slummer J in 2004, stayed there for six years. Uh, the product's called Avilset today. It's an artificial intelligence that he sold to them uh, in 2004 for 10 million. Worked there six years and then said, look, I've got to develop this technology and uh, I've got to have an open data model, open database. So he, he used his funds and started this company in 2010. And so they evolved during the course of the last 10 years, obviously tried different things. They had different clients come in and their model was all about consulting-led software technology. And when Ike, going back to the story, brought me the technology and said, it's an open database, it's an open data model, it does all these things. I said, BS, <laughs> not possible. <laughs> no, no, there's no such thing. I've been in this industry for 37 years. It can't, it can't happen. You, you can't do that. You have to have a fixed model to drive your outputs. He said, Ike says, I don't know how they're doing it, but at the end of the day, they're doing it and you need to do a deep dive. So I spent a lot of time, literally two or three months, all during COVID, I might add, looking remotely at what they have. Uh, I was talking to a lot of different clients about how they'd been doing it recently and such, pulling data Mm -hmm. together and then running the apps. And so the more I peeled the layer back, the more I realized it was really true. Mm -hmm. And sort of the light went off in April when I we were demoing for another client to decide whether I even wanted to invest. And we started showing the actual application and work, not only the data imports, but also the P sharp language, which is a scripting language mm-hmm. I'll come back to, but all how all the apps worked and how you could actually do AI and machine learning iteratively through a company that they started with, which is OMV. OMV being the national Austrian company, uh, they had developed this in concert with them. And that's what they okay. were really showing me. Because before I got to see the details of the technology, it was more of a lot of arm waving and trust us. Yeah. And you know how that is. Yeah. Uh, but when I looked at the OMV and the outputs of what they did with OMV was actually really impressive. So they had 22,000 wells running on Petrovisor. Okay. Uh, 250 different fields. And what they had done was taken wells that had water cut in excess of 90 and 95% and were trying to determine whether to abandon the wells or work over and recomplete the wells. So the oil sphere group wrote a workflow where they were able to ingest the wells. Now they started with 500, but 500 morphed into 22,000. So from 2015, 16, they started adding more wells, adding more workflows using what's called P sharp, which mm-hmm. is a specific scripting language that any engineer, anybody mm-hmm. knows how to write software, pretty easy to do. So it's a scripting language. And they've scripted around 50 or 60 different applications that would look at rod pump opt- optimization, ESP optimization, uh, the economics associated with picking the right well to increase the production in it. And so I want you to picture that 22,000 wells of daily production, water production, anything that's happening in the field, any workovers, recompletions, all the cost structure, any kind of data is automatically fed into Petrovisor every night. Because once you connect it once, it automatically updates every night or whatever time the data is available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's running machine learning around that information, around the next event that you might be performing. It sends you... Uh, notifications that a well might have gone down. And if the well went down, it tells you how much it made the day before, if that data is available, how much money you're losing relative to the price of oil is that day or gas. It'll tell you how much it's going to cost to work over or recomplete that well. So OMV originally had around 18 or 20 people amalgamating this data Mm -hmm. and running multiple disparate engineering calculations around each one of the workflows I talked about. It's extremely time consuming. Today, they have two people. And the two people are only monitoring the system and giving outputs from the data that Petrovisor produces. 
So Petrovisor is the platform and they built these individual apps on that. It integrates everything in and then in these individual apps is where you're finding the insights that you're looking for. Correct. And the apps work together in a workflow. Okay. And the beauty of Petrovisor is you can display it at any open API display format. So here in the US, everybody likes Spotfire, Power mm -hmm. BI, Tableau. Mm -hmm. We have our own user interface, but we find uh, a lot of engineers like their own uh, space to, to, to visualize things. It's almost essential these days because everybody has, everybody likes their own flavor of ice cream, right? And that's in every single ENP has Spotfire these days. And if you go in there and you try to mess up their workflow, like we're very protective of our internal tools too. I'm sure. Like everybody builds their own little workflow around, you know, what they do. You kind of, you come in, you try to disrupt that. Everybody gets upset. And so it's, it's smart to be able to do that. Well, as soon as we present, everybody's saying, well, we already use Spotfire. We said, oh, great. Let's show you a demo in Spotfire. So we immediately fire up the application and show them a lot of the data and how it displays in Spotfire. And, and, and the other thing about Spotfire is most people use it as a flat, Display tool where they run some rudimentary calculations, but once you not start really loading built it up, for calculations. not built for calculations. Yeah. Some people try it, yeah, and then it falls apart, and they'll tell you that. Yeah, well, you can you can run calculations and then e import that, export it back to uh, Petrovisor, and it reruns the calculations. So imagine it's it's ex Petrovisor Excel on steroids, where it's constantly outputting to, to Spotfire. It's displaying any screen, any format that you want. And then it's, you can bring that data back in and it reruns more calculations. So you can do all the inputs you want. It can import any kind of, any kind of uh, data from any platform, uh, from Petrel to Ares, uh, any open platform that you can think about. One of the examples we do for Adnoc in the Middle East is they wanted to take uh, a field evaluation and understand drilling placement optimization uh, from their Petrel app. So we took all the key data which mm -hmm. helped us to figure out where to optimize to place the well, all the other data to in increase uh, placement efficiency, drilling efficiency, depths, angles, all of the above. We built that into one workflow, one screen farm. And that, that year we saved them around $75 million in their placement by their own admission. Mm -hmm. And typically what would take them a year to do, we did it in a better part of two months. Wow. And then now that all the data's in it, they're starting to use it as a regular format. It's a regular tool we're going to distribute for them. So one of the things I think I heard you say was that instant, uh, instant insight into profitability or loss on a well level. Is that yeah, right? Correct. So that was one of the things. So as I was telling you before the mic, this is the space that I lived in. This is what got me into the industry. Okay. And so one of my one of my questions when coming in and presenting to companies was, give me a list of your 10 most profitable wells and a list of your 10 least profitable wells. And they said, give me two weeks if we can even pull it all together. Right. So being able to do that in real time is a complete game changer. I don't care where you're at, what company you're at. I have yet to see any people be able to do well, that. Well, it's funny. At my last startup, one of our partners is a PhD statistician from um, Stanford. And he did not believe me that an EMP couldn't tell you at any at any point in time if a well was profitable on a marginal cost basis. He's like, no, Colin, <laughs> they have to. They have to. And I was like, look, I'm telling you, they can't. They can't do it. A funny story. Our, <clears throat> we were organizing our group to join the company, our sort of our founders, our chief technology officer, chief commercial officer and stuff. And we brought in someone from outside of the industry, Kenton Gray, who was the chief technology officer for iOffice. Mm. And so we started explaining to Kenton how archaic, I'll use the word archaic, of how people are data, disparate applications, the hodgepodge of different uh, databases and everything they're doing. And he laughed. He said, it can't be that bad, Peter. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, over, <clears throat> you're overemphasizing something that's really not that bad. I said, oh, trust us. And so he's been in the company now for about seven or eight months. And every day he just shakes his head. When he talks <laughs> to customers and he realizes they don't know where the data is first, and when they do know what the data is, it's not organized. Mm -hmm. And once they start organizing it, they're just displaying it, but not doing anything with it. And everyone working in their own application. Well, Petrovisor takes all of those issues and organizes it in a place, as I described, that helps you actually run calculations and do things. So it's, it's going to be an evolution with our platform. And we literally started pushing real hard to the industry, not unlike we're doing now where we're talking to you guys uh, around the end of December, but this is all during COVID and this is through all the major layoffs that everyone's had. No mm -hmm. one's at the office. Yeah. So really the push has started just recently and, and we've been overwhelmed with the response. We recently did a Darcy forum. I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with those. And we had literally 19 different companies off the forum call up and immediately request 
uh, demos, and, are, and and the majority of them are looking for proposals. This is all within a two week period of time. Yeah, because they don't believe it. Yeah, I was just with customers today, and I described to them what we do. It's a small independent downtown that that wants to put a lot of money to work. So unusual in our space, they want to spend money, <laughs> and they want us to help them rapidly evaluate multiple properties. And so they said we have a, a opportunity to look at sixteen hundred wells to buy the field, and we have our old way of doing it, which is pretty old. And, and it takes us weeks and weeks and weeks. And I said, fine, are they going to give you the date? I said, fine, it'll take us two or three days. We'll bring the data in. And then you tell us what workflows you want to see. And we're running for you. We'll have outputs for you within a week or two. They're saying it's not possible. And he said, well, if you have the data, that's the, the first thing. And we it's know the best how to way to demo, the use your own data against them. You know? I, and, and look, and I said, like, hey, I said matter of is... fact, here's what we'll do. We'll run a parallel process. We'll, we'll do it in Petrovisor and we'll look at the results. And then you do it your old way. And so we left today with the idea that that's what we're going to put together and we're doing a demo on Monday and then we're going to talk about what data sets we want to go to with them from there. So that's awesome. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. It's uh, like I said, the op the open data model is probably the most unique feature that if you think you can map one for one or like for like yeah. uh, into a system and not being hamstrung with mapping back to that specific field, it's something so unique. And the architect who did it, one of the, the Austrian a gentleman named Andrea is just a genius. He's been doing it for 20 years and he's always wanted to do it, but he's always been hamstrung working with, with majors who were stuck. Yeah. And the fact that he got to develop something from scratch is always very good in our, in our space, as you both well know. Yeah. Well, I think I met those guys a few years back because they were actually working out of this building and oh, you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lars. Yeah. And those guys. It is Lars. It, yeah, yeah. Correct. It is Lars. Yeah. I met him just across this wall in that room over there. And they're okay. telling me like, oh, we're working on this. He said, what do you do? I was like, and we just started the podcast. I think we're like five episodes in. We're like, we've got this podcast called Oil and Gas Startup. So like, we'll have to get you guys on the show sometime. So it's funny that two years later, it's actually coming to fruition. It's so funny. I know everybody thinks that we're full of shit, but the, like what you guys are solving is what we believe to be this single-handedly the biggest problem in oil and gas today. It's the fundamental data issue. It's access to data, to clean data, to structure data, being able to do stuff with it. If you don't have that, how are you gonna apply any kind of AI, ML, any of this other fluff that we see on top of bad data? And if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. Correct. And and the, the, the challenge that you'll see, and you have a lot of companies out there that have point-to-point products, which, mm -hmm. which, which are good. Don't get me wrong. You, you have SCADA data that monitors all different points on your production line and it sends that data in and you get to have a visualization, a form, and then it stores in their model and you get to see it, but it's their own instance. And you have to sort of make determinations from that one instance of information. Well, multiply that with your major company by 30 SCADA systems and everybody has their own screen and you try to go to a standard. And then even after you have that, you don't put it to an economic decision. And you don't put it to sometimes daily production decisions. And so that's really what we amalgamate. We'll, we'll pull in SCADA data down to the second mm -hmm. uh, along with everything else. So it, it's really an important aspect of the amalgamation. And here, here's what we tell people. It's sort of funny. Uh, everyone says, you're not gonna, I'm going to use Aries. I'm always going to use Aries. I'm, I'm an Aries guy. So your <laughs> reservoir engineers typically – it's their Aries Zealots. That tide's changing. It's okay. changing. There, there is another company coming that I'm familiar with, which <laughs> you, you guys can mention its name. Uh, and, and look, I'm not a, I, I, I come from Landmark. I'm very familiar with Landmark and, and Aries, but but I hear that a lot. And I, and I tell them, look, you can still run Aries. We're not trying to stop you, but we're going to do decline curve analysis for you multiple times with all updated information. And you can't do that in Aries today. Mm -hmm. Aries will let you do a one-time incident of, of one time and you can store data, but you can't run it. <clears throat> and it doesn't do AI and machine learning for multiple variable regression and decline curve analysis was what we can do. And so I said, the moment Aries does that great, but I don't think it will because it's a fixed model and the way you translate the data in there, it's very, very challenging. I won't say impossible, but very challenging. Mm-hmm. But yes, there is competitors coming. There, there's there's some really, really good competitors. <laughs> so, I think you guys know who we're talking let's, about. Let's dive into your background, Peter, because sure. I didn't even know who you were, you know, walking in here. And then you start talking about all your previous experience. And I was like, holy shit, this guy's cool. He's got a cool backstory. So let's go back as far as you want to go back, you know, sure. from you were involved with RSEG and we can dive into the RSEG deal. But just kind of who are you? Give us, give us a background of the last 20 years. 
So I'll, I'll go. So I'm 37 years in the industry, but I'll cut it short for the, for the first 15. How about that, Colin? And, and then we'll That'll be okay. Work. That'll be perfect. So I'm a petroleum <laughs> engineer by degree. I graduated from the University of Louisiana in Lafayette. I'm South, Cajun born, South Louisiana. <laughs> uh, started as a reservoir engineer. Worked offshore as a production engineer. So my background is reservoir data, reservoir engineering. I, I actually worked for a consulting firm that I pretty much did everything, geology. I did all the map interpretations, did all, everything you needed to do to do uh, volumetric calculations or whatever. So that's yeah. all of my background. Yeah. And then from there, I joined Halliburton uh, in 1985. And I had the luxury, since I was a petroleum engineer and because of my reservoir background, I got to work with all the different groups within Halliburton. So the logging, the directional drilling, the to be conveyed, the completion side, then moved into the frac side. And so I got to work through all of the Halliburton groups, both in business development and engineering. And so I had a 25 year career at Halliburton. Uh, during that career at Halliburton, they bought Landmark Graphics. Mm -hmm. And I was asked as the first senior person to go over as a VP of the drilling technology development group at Landmark. Now, at the time, I only knew enough about software to be dangerous. <laughs> but I was asked to go manage a group of 100 people, uh, all developing drilling software technology, three different countries in five different locations. <laughs> and at the time, the software revenue was about eight, nine million a year. It was one of the smaller product lines within Landmark. Landmark mm -hmm. was known as G&G. &G, so all the seismic, you know, you know yeah. and it wasn't. And when I joined, I said, after getting my feet under me, I said, I, I want to take this to a 50 or $100 million business. And everybody at Landmark thought I was crazy. <laughs> well, in true fact, we, it became bigger than that within, within the segment. So I worked my way through Landmark as the sen senior, single senior Halliburton person, only in a company of 330 people. So I was dropped in, not sure about who I was and why I was there. Uh, this is 1979. Yeah. <clears throat> And then I worked my way up through Landmark from the lowly head of drilling software to presidency over the company in seven years. So I stayed there at Landmark five years, became C op, chief operating officer for the company, working for John Gibson, who yeah. I'm sure you guys know very well. Yeah. Love John. I, I, I John, was going to you, say, you're going to have to, after this, you're going to have to go tell John Gibson that you're on the podcast. He likes giving us hell every time he sees us. He's, well, John he's, and I have been talking a lot lately on, on some <laughs> different investments, which we, we don't, yeah. we'll, we'll come there as well. But, <laughs> but anyway, then I, after staying five years, I went back to Halliburton proper, uh, for a short period of saying I was senior business development uh, of sales, the whole world. world. And then uh, Andy Lane went over and took my place. Then Andy took John's place as president. You guys heard of Andy Lane, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, and then Andy Lane went to Halliburton proper. And then I went back to Landmark as president and CEO in uh, 2004 through 2006. Okay. So, you know, literally two years in, in a, what I, what I call my favorite role in the history of working for some company directly was fantastic. Loved it. I mean, I love Landmark because of the technology, the people. Yeah. And we took Landmark back when we bought Landmark. It was a $190 million business. When uh, I left Landmark in 2006, uh, we were a $725 million revenue wow. stream, $300 million profit business annually. So from an EBITDA standpoint, it's a 300. You do a multiple. I didn't know that Landmark was that, was that big. Yeah, yeah I, know. I had no idea. I knew it was, was big, not, not quite that big, though. Yeah. Wow. So Landmark had the digital and consulting segment strategy. The, the Landmark proper group itself mm -hmm. was about 600 million, 650. And then we had another aspect that did uh, IPM work where you did integrated project management work around the world. And that was around 80 to $100 million. So, so I call the digital consulting group, which had the reservoir engineers, production engineers, all that working for customers around the world, uh, a part of Landmark. It was, it was a yeah. Landmark. We call it digital consulting, but they were all Landmark people. Yeah. Uh, so it was a combination of consulting. At that time, we had 3,300 people and we had over 1,500 consultants. Jeez. And then the rest of the group was software. That's crazy. So wow. I, I remained in that role till 2006. And then I moved into a, a newly created role of business development, marketing, and corporate contracts global for the company. So essentially I had 1,900 people in my group. We did all sales, marketing, business development, so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, last year I was there, 2008. Uh, we were a $22 billion company. And my group was responsible for revenue globally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I was asked to move... Eight time number eight in ten years <laughs> in two thousand eight because you're gonna ask the question what happened and I opted to leave after twenty five years so I was eligible at forty seven years old for early retirement yeah so 
I left uh, in 2000, my first year on the street was 2009, but left 2008 after 25 years at Halliburton and uh, sat out for a little while trying to figure out what I wanted to do, took a breather because, you know, you guys pray about corporate America. It was everything and then some yeah. of a pace international. I traveled 100 plus days a year internationally, 125. So I was gone a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So it was good to move on. Not long after I left, I was offered a role with Kinda Capital, Shell Technology Ventures. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was asked to be chairman of two of their companies, and they'd be a senior advisor to part of their portfolio. They were 26 companies at the time. Wow. And so one of the companies was Tendeca, yeah. and the other company was Zytex. So one was ESP, the other was a completion group, one was in the UK. So I moved, I moved to the UK to, to manage that one, and then would travel back and forth every couple of weeks. I eventually got someone to come in as CEO, and then I moved into the chairman role. Mm -hmm. uh, but I stayed, I stayed chairman throughout till till I left Kinda in 2016, and then uh, we sold Zytex to Slumberjay. So Zytex was an ESP artificial company. Yeah. Uh, essentially, if you're familiar with it, it's if you picture it's a light socket that you plug an ESP into where you can retrieve ESPs fluently. You know, yeah. and, and it's a great technology. We sold it to Summer J for 125 million. Awesome. So we were a negative margin margin company when we sold it. Yeah. So uh, it was another unique technology that mm -hmm. we were able to, to to take to the industry. Uh, during the course of that time, I joined Warburg Pincus. During the course of the Kinda Capital, so I actually worked yeah. for two masters at one time. I worked yeah. with uh, Kinda Capital, still sat on their boards, did some work with them, and then Warburg Pincus was starting the all field services segment of their in business and mm -hmm. asked me to join as their first senior advisor to move into the all field services sector. Uh, we made some acquisitions, did different things with them, but but I think a one that's key to digital technology and unique is RS Energy. Going back to your original question yeah. earlier. Yeah. Uh, so when Warburg was standing up their OFS um, d division, was this traditional OFS or did RSEG fall under? Traditional this? OFS. Okay. Uh, and actually, uh, that's an interesting question. So in 2014, the original thesis was we would go out and find a team that would work with me and the Warburg group, obviously, uh, to look at different acquisitions and roll-ups. So the first one was Rubicon Oilfield International, where we brought in Mike Reeves, John Griggs, you might have heard that before, and other industry people to form Rubicon. Uh, we started off with $300 million investment, and we were tasked to go out, I was chairman of the company, to go out and put that money to work. So we acquired five companies in less than a year. So wow. it was a whirlwind acquisition <laughs> run, uh, all backed by Warburg. Uh, we brought a board in, and we operated almost like a public company, although we were private, and we had some high-powered people uh, on the board with us. And so we conducted, you know, the formal meetings and so forth. Uh, during that same time, we acquired a company called Conquest Completion Services, yep. which was a call tubing company yep. out of Shreveport, uh, and sat on the board of that company. So the, the, the thesis was I'm allowed to invest, and then I sit on the board, mm -hmm. and then stay active, stay active with the company. Yeah. Uh, just because I'm trying to plan out when I get a little bit older, um, does, does Warburg pay you for these positions? Because I'm interested <laughs> later in life. Uh, yes. Okay. Okay. Warburg, if you're listening, hit me up in a few years. Yeah, I, 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 it definitely pays. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so the, uh, the RSEC story is sort of a unique and interesting one in that uh, they have been working with Roth Smith Group. Uh, which was owned by ITG, which I won't bore you with all the details, but they were sort of a financial institution that uh, used the Roth Smith's data analytics platform and information to sell trades to investors. Mm -hmm. A simple way to say it. And Warburg was using some of their research and information, and they brought me in and said, you know, we'd like you to take a look and tell us what you think of the company. So this is in August of 2000. Uh, 15, we started looking at it, uh, sorry, 2014, started looking at it. And I made multiple trips up there, worked with the group, and it was 42 people. And we recognized at the time some really, really smart people, but they were using other people's data, mm -hmm. and they were using their reservoir engineering and analytic smarts to generate reports in flat files. They didn't share any data because they couldn't, and they would just send out flat reports. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... I looked at it and, and the, the data was, the information was incredible and the engineers were very, very smart, strong reservoir engineers, history, great history, only 40 of them. And the more I looked at it, I said, look, if we can take what you're doing and codify it, because I'll tell you, they had no software at all. And when I say no software, I mean 
Nothing. It was stored on Excel flat files and databases. So this yeah, is purely it. rolled up sleeves and just tons of work. Correct. Okay. Hard knocks. Somebody called to a report. They'd have an analyst talk to them, and then they would email it to them. Mm-hmm. That's how they got their data. They were a good revenue company. They were $25, $30 million revenue for that, for that business, which is not bad. Yeah. Considering there was no software component of it. And it became apparent to me that if we could codify all of their technology, we gave them some investments and we worked with them really closely, we could change the industry by storm. Because I knew what IHS had, what what Mac had, what Drilling Info had, was more of a data uh, output that people got to do their own calculations. Matter of fact, most of the competition got IHS or Drilling Info and put it in Spotfire and would display it. But there wasn't the smarts behind it. Mm-hmm. And so we recognized if we could make the, make the data smarter with how they did it from an analytical platform and then create software on top of it, uh, we'd really have something. So we completed the acquisition at the end of that year. It was actually during Christmas holidays. We finalized the transaction with ITG. Uh, I joined the board and started working with them 1st of February. And then we started hiring people, uh, chief commercial officer, chief technology officer. We started laying out the strategy. I worked very closely with them. Uh, so let me stop you right there really quickly. When you're going out and you, so you, you join the board and like you said, you just hired a CTO and chief commercial officer and stuff like that. Are you finding guys from the industry or are you finding the smartest guys that you can possibly find from outside the industry to bring them in or is it a combination of both? Combination of both. So the uh, chief commercial officer, we, I'll back up and say we were very, very rigorous in our search. We hired people who were uniquely positioned to bring us great candidates we went through over 120 candidates for the chief commercial officer and wow. over 200 candidates for the chief technology officer. Wow. Just to give you an idea how thorough yeah. it was. They were very analytical. When I say they, the, the RSEG group were mm-hmm. very analytical in how they approached Manu John and Jim Jarrell and very, very good. And so I, I got to look at the, the final candidates per se mm-hmm. and got to interview with them and, and, and spend some time. Uh, but one of the guys came from uh, Seattle, uh, Microsoft background, mm-hmm. didn't know anything about oil and gas, mm-hmm. which is great. And which has helped us drive to using gaming technology, which which I'll come back to, which is very unique in our industry. Yeah. And then the person we hired uh, for the chief commercial officer, Matt Johnson, came from the industry directly and indirectly, but he, he was looking at the analytical side, really mm-hmm. sharpened what he did. And, and Matt was another star that we brought. So was Ian Wynn, who's our chief technology officer. And so we worked very closely with them to formulate our strategy, where we're going to go to market. But remember, we didn't have a product. Yeah. And so bringing Ian in, Matt, we started talking through what that looked like. And Ian, I I give him lots of credit, recognized that when we're going to start rendering the number of wells we were talking about and the raw data that we had to to congest, Ian's great idea was let's use GPUs Mm -hmm. rather than go to CPUs. And just think about what we can do. So we're going to, we're going to take an order of magnitude of speed by which you can render information and data. So we immediately started developing using gaming computing technology. Yeah. We worked with a company out of Toronto called Kinetica, which was a new startup group that that was really starting to develop. We talked to them like three years ago about consulting. We were doing technology consulting back then. (laughs) So you know, they were trying to break into oil and gas at the time. Yeah. Yeah. We were one of the first that they did. We, we worked a good long-term agreement with them. We We actually got them. I think they were working with Anadarko back in the day. Anadarko followed us. Oh, okay. So yeah. Anadarko was our first lead client. Okay. Uh, they were what we call a lighthouse client. So they yeah. agreed to help us before we even developed the first code to help us gin up what the code might look like. And so remember, um, uh, Anadarko had a great digital technology transformation mm-hmm. team, yeah. about 100 of them. Yep. Uh, we worked very closely, the, the RSEC team, uh, hand in glove, literally, to help develop. They, they pre, pre-bought a lot of technology before it was even developed yeah, uh, and committed to us, which was incredible. They were and great they, for the industry. They were fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And their people such, were really smart. Such a travesty. What is, <laughs> it is a travesty. What is, what's, what's happened so far? It, it is. And, and I've actually come across some of their people in the consulting world talking about data creation, which is great. But anyway, uh, we, we work very closely with them, with other customers. We ginned up our first product. Uh, interesting enough, all of the data uh, we... Uh, we use was from Drilling Info. Mm-hmm. And so we had to unwind the Drilling Info contract mm-hmm. because we weren't allowed to reuse their data and sell it in the yeah. form that we were doing. Yeah. So we bought a company out of Philadelphia called Navport. Okay. It was a small data mm-hmm. company that had all the same data. Yep. 
Uh, we actually went in and bought that company as a bolt-on acquisition not long after, about a year after we did. And it was a requirement uh, simply because we had to have our own independent data. And it worked out fantastic. They were in Philadelphia. They were data scrubbing. They had 30 people. We increased that office. They have a huge RSEG office there now. Uh, so fast forward, we developed all the different applications that you're familiar with for both the data, uh, Fusion Next, which is the next generation of how you look at data, how, how they uh, looked at parent-child relationships to the evolution of where they are now. And interesting enough, Inveras bought Drilling Info, and then after a year and a half, two years, recognized they weren't going to catch up with, with RSEG and ended up buying RSEG for over a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, it was a very good disposition for, for Warburg and all of us who invested in it. Yeah. And uh, we were very pleased with it. And it, it was very good for Inveris in our view because they weren't going to get where we were with the legacy system they had to deal with. I, I shouldn't say they weren't. They could have. But you and I both know it's – and I tell this to everybody. People don't realize it, it's much easier to develop software from scratch yeah. <laughs> than it is to have to take a legacy system. You know, mm -hmm. at Landmark, one of my biggest challenges was we had 80 different applications we had to deal with every day. Mm -hmm. And so you had the legacy systems, you had to upgrade. I mean, most of it, what we did was maintenance of the software. You weren't able to reinvent yourself. Yeah. We tried to in a lot of technologies and eventually Landmark got out to decision space and did some other things. Yeah. But it's really, really hard because you don't want to hurt your current revenue stream. Yeah. And when you start talking about new stuff, customers say, I want to buy the new stuff. I don't want the old stuff anymore. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> You've been listening to the show for a while. You know that we've spent the last couple of years talking about how traditionally oil and gas companies are built on legacy systems that are pretty siloed. So there's little to no connectivity between these systems. Data must be formatted and analyzed in a high-touch, time-consuming manual process that is prone to errors. It's time to change the tradition, or as we say, it's time to evolve or die. Datagration's PetroVisor platform is a software technology that integrates and delivers automated engineering workflows at scale. So this platform enables knowledge automation within each integrated engineering workflow, creating a single point of truth and a unified model for better decision making. Each automated engineering workflow is an integration of pre-configured commercial applications that solve specific petrotechnical problems and are adaptable to any unstructured data or operational situation that an EMP companies face. The pre-configured applications are a package of technology components and scripts that solve a defined task that is part of the engineering workflow. PetroVisor is a proven technology platform that has been in production for over 10 years and is used in over 250 fields and is actively managed on 22,000 wells today. If you want to learn more about Datagration, go over to datagration.com. Check these guys out. So, so anyway, start to cannibal so you sell, so you sell for a billion dollars plus, okay? Okay. My first question is, how'd you celebrate? <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean so i mean you've had a lot of other acquisitions in the past a lot of other exits i feel like this one probably takes the cake in terms of oh, it's, it's the definitely biggest, the largest the biggest right? yeah by a long shot so we, we aspire we, to that we were, so i'm trying to put we myself were, in your shoes thank you we were so i celebrated personally a, a lot yeah <laughs> uh, but you got to remember this all happened right at the start of covid yeah yeah and so lockdown, can't travel. We had three different dinners planned and a week long, multiple day celebration in New yeah. York with Warburg. We scheduled it three different times and we kept on saying, well, it's going to go away. It's going to go away. And we scheduled it end of March, which we pushed back to April and then New York crashed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then we said, we're going to try to do it somewhere else. We're going to try to go to Canada and Canada got locked down. Yeah. So we have not celebrated as a group Oh, that's crazy. At all. Really yeah. disappointing. I, I yeah. talked to Jim and Manoj and we keep saying, boy, when it comes back, we're, we're, we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. they, they've, they've both personally celebrated. They both did extremely well, very happy, uh, along with the rest of the team. Yeah. But collectively, none of us have celebrated. They haven't even celebrated broadly. They did a little because right at the beginning they were okay, but not to the degree to your question yeah. that the celebration should have been had, which was a multiple multiple day celebration in New yeah. York, which was scheduled. Yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, uh, the hope is we'll do it in the future. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully so. Yeah. That's. Um, I mean, that news was obviously massive news in the energy industry last year, and you know we had uh, Gilmore on the show. Um, that was for. When they did the Q engineering, that was the Q engineering. Yeah. So that was I don't know if that was before or after. But I think the, that was after, right? The the data space, you know, you look at it, and I mean, 
when you have RSEG and Inveris combining forces, and then obviously S&P just acquiring IHS a couple of months ago, really kind of had this monopoly in the data space and oil and gas. And how do you, do you think that they remain the, the big players? Do you, how, how do you like view the data game, the fundamental data sets? Cause I always, like, I'm always really interested and we can talk about this later off the mic, but you look at Bloomberg Terminal, you look at all of these really just kind of incumbents in the data space, and there seems like there's a lot of opportunity to strip strip off verticals or strip pieces off of them. Do you think that that'll happen in energy and oil and gas? You're going to, yes, very, very directly. You're going to see evolutions of what they're not doing or able to do because they're more worried about making money and paying their notes. Mm-hmm. Uh and not being able to invest at the level. I, I know this is happening with them specifically. I know the mergers and what you're seeing in the industry is because synergies need to exist. There's yeah. too many people all trying to sell the same thing. Uh, it's inevitable in our industry, both in the traditional off-field services. We can talk about both the Chapter 11s and all the mergers that have occurred over the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. Not only the digital side, not only the yeah. software technology sides, more will be coming, but the traditional off-field services and the E&P companies. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, COVID is something no one's ever expected or seen. Uh, the the decrease in market oil consumption and demand fall mm-hmm. off is unprecedented. I mean, it's one thing for OPEC to turn off the spigot a little bit or increase versus the fall off of people just not burning gasoline or yeah. diesel anymore. Yeah, it, it's it's monumental. Yeah, and so that trickle effect is going to be affected by felt by everyone. But the but the interesting thing, entrepreneurial spirit still remains like we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, the digital space, the technology space, and the investments that people want to make in this space is is that area. Yep. And that you're going to continue to see it. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier, we, we have a group that we pull together to play the contrarian space in oil field services, energy, and renewables, where we're actively looking at different technologies. We're looking at companies that aren't doing well because they couldn't get out of their own way or because they they missed the boat or they've had tragedy or times associated with COVID or whatever and didn't react to it in the way they should. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to be unfair to them, but at the same time, we come and look at things differently. We, meaning the group of investor friends mm-hmm. and, and colleagues that I have, and we believe that we can take different tax on certain businesses. We can start from scratch as I was mentioning earlier, mm-hmm. one of them we're building up in the renewable space. Yep. We could take some that have been existing that have been just sort of trugging along and haven't taken advantage of the cloud and the space that they should yeah. and how to reapply geophysical data to the cloud and what we can do differently there. Uh, and, and really looking at some new technologies around uh, robotics mm-hmm. uh, and changing and transforming how people go to sea, uh, underwater internets and, and different technologies there. To me, those are the areas that you need to capitalize on and expand. Yeah. Uh, and, and put money there because that's where people, it's all around efficiency, letting technology, making you more efficient. You guys know this in, in spades, mm-hmm. better, yeah. than, better, better than anyone. And the sooner people recognize that technology can do a lot more for them and with them, and the less they fight it and the more they embrace it, the more successful we're going to be in our industry, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, the Kenton Gray story, yeah. who trying to describe how archaic in a lot of cases and how we worked or didn't work together uh, and how everybody had their own applications has been a big challenge and is going to be the downfall, in my view, in this evolution. And in a way, it's going to spur the need to adopt the data and to adopt the digitization because there's been a lot of lip service about it. Let's, let's be fair. Yeah. Every company say lip service. Only yeah. the last 20 years we've been talking. About. <laughs> yeah. Like like the, the, the erosion of people and the changing workforce and adopting technology. And unfortunately, it's been a lot of lip service. Well, unfortunately, the unprecedented uh, decrease of people at all the majors which is unprecedented. You know, so my 37-year career, you don't hear of the Exxons, the Shells, the Chevrons laying off in mass and then having another one and then another one. Yeah. And the BPs and the others saying, we won't yeah. be in oil and gas anymore. We're going to go to renewables. Yeah. Well, for them to evolve and to continue to manage the properties they have with 20, 30, 40% less people, they're going to have to let technology do it. Yep. Because they haven't. And yep. because it's th- they're used to working a certain way and they've allowed people to work that way and not force them to work differently. Yeah. And to me, to your question, 
I think people will adopt and adapt to the new digital age. They have to, or they won't succeed. Yeah. So we actually had Kirk on the on the podcast <laughs> yesterday. Yeah, that's our tagline. I don't know if you know that or not, but oh, it's okay. evolve or die. And we've okay. been preaching that message for four or five years now. Agree. And you know, you hit the nail on the head. It's the the idea that you can go acquire assets and continue to scale and have your GNA scale along with that. It just doesn't work in the energy business. You have to be you have to enable your workforce to be more efficient. And you do that through software and technology. And Kirk was here talking to us yesterday and we were just talking about, you know, the energy space as a whole from an invest, you know, an investment perspective. If you're looking at startups, you know, one, a lot of investors come, I, I talked to a lot of VCs that are looking to get into the energy space and they're very interested in oil and gas. And they're always like, where are the exits at? Where are the exits? You know, where are the billion dollar companies? And a lot of them, you know, look towards like rig up or work rise, whatever their new name is now. Right. And you know, you look at our seg, you know, do you see a lot of, op I mean, it, you sound very optimistic when talking about investing in energy technology. What is your perspective in, you know, over the next 10 or 20 years in terms of exits and the ceiling that a lot of energy tech companies actually have? I mean, are you pretty optimistic? Maybe we go straight see, line, like who acquires data creation? Yeah. Like, can you see billion dollar exits being repeated in this space? Yes. So, when we were first looking at data integration and doing our money raise, uh, my view is that data integration is going to be bigger than RSEG exit. And because it's a global, mm -hmm. it's a platform, it's conventional, unconventional, it's ESG, uh, it's constraint management, it's topside, it's, 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 it's everything you can do as a, sort of a, uh, it, we call it a maker platform, and it helps to automate knowledge. And so the evolution of automating knowledge uh, in a platform that does everything we're describing, but but you get to see it. It's not a black box. Mm -hmm. uh, is going to be something that's transferable. That's the other thing I didn't mention is that the way the architecture is designed in Petrovisor, it's scalable to anything. Downstream, midstream, uh, we can go to financials. Uh, really anything you can think of, the platform can scale, and then the P-sharp language can be written on top of it. It's like R-sharp, but, mm -hmm. but it's, it's P-sharp. Mm -hmm. It's our own written language that we developed as a morph of the Microsoft R-sharp language. And so it's, it's a scalable. So I think there'll be multi-billion exits. Yeah. Uh, I think people are going to want to be in this space. Who acquires us? Well, private equity potentially, because mm -hmm. we all know, and, and it was interesting. We were talking about David Wesson earlier, a good friend of mine. You know, he sent a note out, you know, what's going to happen now that the election's over and, you know, what about investments and all the LPs, your school funds, CalPERS, no one wants to invest in our industry anymore. Yeah. And when David and I were talking, I said, the only thing I can tell you, I know definitively, there'll be more regulation. Uh, there'll be uh, an exit of invested capital in our business. The price of oil will go back up. Okay. I'm through seven major cycles in my 37 years. It's going to go back up. I don't, yeah. I don't care. We're already seeing it faster than anyone predicted right mm -hmm. now. We've been in a downturn pretty much our whole career. So yeah. <laughs> okay. well, I, 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 I've got to live through some good times yeah. uh, and, and enjoy them. I thoroughly. keep hearing about them. I haven't experienced them yet though. Yeah. It, it, I promise you one thing. It will come back full cycle. Yeah. I told that to David. So I said, the price of oil will come back and you'll see a renewed effort in North America to start drilling again. Maybe not to the fervor we saw of 2100 in 2014. Yeah. I don't ever really want to see that again, yeah. but you're going to see it improve and you're going to see it increase yeah. and you're going to see oil go back to 70, 80 bucks and the cycle is going to repeat itself. Yeah. And so I think that's a three-year cycle from now. And so by the time we get there and it's morphed into the, what we think, what I think mm -hmm. data creation is going to be, because it's global, it's not just a unconventional play. It's yep. unconventional on everything I just described, that everyone's going to be using it. All the majors are going to use it to digitize how they work, how they make better business decisions, like OMV built it into their, their decision-making process for everything they do. We believe all the major companies will be using it in that form. And let's let's talk about it. Who would want to buy us? Uh, the major consulting companies, you know, from an Accenture to an EY, would they love to have this platform mm -hmm. where we're generating hundreds of millions of dollars where they could throw a lot of people at it and continue to grow and expand it vertically across all the spaces because the, the platform's there. Yeah. And no one's done it before. You you mm -hmm. you said it earlier. You haven't heard of anybody doing this. We're the only ones. Yep. And we're going to continue to scale it with an ESG offering that we're working on right now. Uh, the Halliburtons of the world will recognize they have to have something, the Halliburtons, the Slumberjays, the Bakers, the others are going to have to realize they might have to have something they want to do. Hell, yeah. C3AI, 
who is a cloud-based only solution. What I didn't mention is we're on-prem and cloud or hybrid. We can do both. Yeah. And so the national oil companies only allow you to supply on-prem applications. Yeah. Well, all the people we've been talking about, they only do cloud. Yeah. And so we can bring that unique hybrid solution to them. Uh, the, the Exxons want their own internal on-prem yet cloud-based across all their entities. Yet also on spreadsheets. Correct. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll build it. I, I think investment will come back. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting when we were doing money raise for, for data integration, uh, we had a long list of institutional investors that have been in the space a lot that are, we, our whole group is well known with them. And we made the call and they, they everyone would say the same thing. You know, Peter, if it wasn't all and gas related or you changed the name of the company or you did this, I might be able to convince my group. But right now I just can't do all and gas. That's going to change mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the amount of money, the evolution to your point, it'll go full circle. It'll come back. Yeah. It won't come back with the fervor. It won't come back with the thousands of rigs, but it will come back and there'll be a company to want to pay my view, multi-billion dollars of data integration and others that we're working on uh, that'll be unique and have the same thesis, like we talked about RSEG, but the same thesis around changing the way people work and providing digital uh, technology and answers to people more quickly, effectively, that they incorporate it to their business and economic decisions. Mm -hmm. So I love the message that you're preaching right now. As Jake mentioned, you know, if you're someone my age, see, I started roughnecking on drilling rigs in 2009, 2010, right at the beginning okay. of the shell boom. And then the majority of the next decade, you know, it's been a downturn. And so there's a lot of people that are my age, early thirties that are kind of sour on the industry. And I've been preaching this message that look, history repeats itself. It's a cyclical industry and we're in a downturn right now. And I think that there's going to be a ton of opportunity over the next at least decade. And, you know, we've had a lot of groups. There's a VC group up in New York City that's really interested in investing in us. And one of the first questions they asked, it's like, why oil and gas? It's a dying industry. And I go on this, I mean, just huge. You, you know, should. Yeah. You know, like I'm like going on a rage. Of, <laughs> What'd you say? Yeah. You said dying industry? I was like, I was like, yeah. I was like, guys, I was like, first, like, come again. I'm a train by nature. So I love building in the bottom of the cycle. And guess what? In three or five years, someone's going to come acquire us when things turn around. And that's how you capitalize on situations. But, you know, I, I had this thread go on uh, viral on Twitter a few days ago. And it was just talking about the energy transition and the balance between technology, between oil and gas and climate tech. And there's just so much opportunity from both sides, especially when you start talking about ESG related tech, you know, how do you improve the environment? There's so much that can be done within oil and gas. I think that can have a massive impact over the next decade, but I, I just don't think that it's a binary conversation. I think that it's an energy transition, you know, it, it evolves over time and there's a ton of opportunity in oil and gas and there's going to be a ton of opportunity in battery tech, geothermal, solar, whatever it may be. And I think if anyone has blinders on and they're not looking across the Broadly. spectrum of energy, they're mm -hmm. missing out on opportunity. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, I've been doing deep dive on ESG the last three months, four yeah. months, uh, and really peeling back multiple layers around what's going to compel a company to really want to do it. So you either have to make regulations to make them do it. And mm -hmm. I say they, meaning the E&P companies primarily. Yeah. Uh, there's been this big shift around how they're looking at how they monetize the scorecards, uh, and until they are held to an account uh, for the leaks, the flares, and all these kinds of things, and it's getting better. Don't, don't misunderstand yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, but they don't know, in a lot of cases, what they don't know. They have to track certain things, and they have to send reports in, but that's about it right now. Yeah. And going back to your point of climate change, they're going to have to want to change. In some ways, they're going to have to be forced to change. And you have to be prepared to give them the information to make better decisions around that change yep. yeah. and to drive them to do it. That's part of what we're looking at doing in our space. Yeah. Uh, the other the other opportunity I was mentioned earlier was we're, we're looking at how do you build together data repositories and systems around renewables. It's another space that people sort of ad hoc invested in, and I use the term ad hoc. It's multi-billion <laughs> dollar investments. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. They're massive. They're, they're massive. You look yeah. at the re recent BP Equinor yeah. off the coast uh, of New York and what they're going to be doing there. They're staggering. But you look at the fundamentals, there's not a lot of information out there. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole wave 
of new digital technology that'll be needed there to mm -hmm. refine. And I think they can learn a lot from what we've done from some of the, the technologies I described yep. earlier yeah. and the reapplication of that. So we have a whole endeavor working in parallel in that space we're going to invest in yeah. and believe we can help to transform the industry uh, and the investments. And, and the good news is the people we're talking to in investors, they want to hear about this. This is exciting. When you call them up and say, hey, look, I'm working on a renewable project or technology <laughs> that fits all these together. You're interested. They said, how much and where? Yeah, it's and a very so easy it's, sell, it's, right? Are you getting exciting. better valuations on that side? Sorry? Are you getting better valuations on that side? I'm getting very good valuations yeah. on that yeah. side. I mean, to the, to the point where we're, the, the initial raise we're going to be doing is small and we're already we already have our individual founders who might do the whole thing. Yeah. And yet the family, we have family and friends saying, let us know how much, and we're hearing big numbers. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it, it's, it's a, it's an exciting place to be. And we hadn't called institutional investors yet. We're only calling people who have high net worth individuals yeah. who, who want the whole thing. All right, Colin, <laughs> we are renewable wildcatters from now on. We get that, uh, get that renewable. Well, no, but that's what, so, you know, we sit in this really interesting space where, you know, we come from oil and gas. We had our foothold in oil and gas, but we're passionate about everything tech related. And just like I told you how we had that viral thread go talking about bridging the gap in energy. Um, but it's like, you know, we've talked to Greentown Labs, Techstars, you know, Techstars has 200 portfolio companies that are focused on climate tech right. and building communities around that and giving them a platform. But, you know, I just think that it's really interesting. Like some of my favorite technologies that I get excited about right now are companies like Crusoe Energy, which is taking uh, flare, ga flare gas and using it to mine Bitcoin mm -hmm. and then uh, like Power Sentry. These companies, their value proposition is, hey, you as an operator can actually save money on your LOEs. And improve your ESG score. Like the ESG score is, you know, the cherry on top. It's not the primary driver. And I think when you look at oil and gas guys are typically, you know, very capitalistic and, and very driven by numbers, right? And so if you can actually have a superior technological solution that can make them money or save them money and improve their ESG and sustainability on top of it, I think that that's like... That type of technology gets me extremely excited. I've, I've looked at it. I was uh, studying it. I uh, did a deep dive on it as well. I, yeah. I find it very unique, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and the conversion is also the technology catching all the flare gas on location and converting it to power. Yeah. And filling, yeah. filling the grids. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you, you have predicted flares very often in drilling when you're doing a pad and you're on the pad for six months or eight months. And you know you're going to be, at the times, you're going to be flaring massive ma BTUs. I mean, yeah. I mean a, a billion cubic feet of gas. Yeah. Uh, I, I was talking to a midstream partner the group the other day, and they estimate they lose anywhere from 6 to 10 BCF of gas a year. Wow. And they're small. Wow. <sighs> That's crazy. Think, Do think you know how much that. Bitcoin that is? <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of Bitcoin. That's a lot of Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, I said, terrible I said, Bitcoin I beast. Yeah, yeah. Beast. Yeah, it's a ton. <laughs> it's a ton. Yeah. We'd have all the Satoshis right now. Well, it's like last night, you know, we we're talking to, I'm not going to name who it is, but one of the largest Japanese funds. And <laughs> well, that just like, gave it away. Like how, much, <laughs> how, much <laughs> gas, how much gas is there out there? And I'm like, there is more gas than, than you could possibly imagine. It's just like a story like that. I mean, you're talking bees, not, <laughs> not him. So well, the gas uh, is, you know, we'll use the term in our lifetimes is limitless. Yeah. Uh, you think of North America, you think about you know, the, the resources there, there's, there's trillions of trillions and trillions of TCF of gas yeah. stranded in locations and would become economical. Yeah. So, so needing gas and, and going back to your, 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 your point or your, your statement you made around, you know, people really getting excited about renewables or not liking the oil and gas industry. Yeah. I, I got news for them and you, you'll think I'm sort of swayed and, and I am in a way, uh, but it's not going away. You're going to get electric cars, but if you think about the percentage of electric cars in the single digits yeah. on the road, and look, you still have to generate enough electricity to uh, power those cars. Yep. Yeah. And this fossil video. fuels are readily available. Not to yeah. say renewables aren't coming and they are, yeah. but the evolution and, and the amount of multi-billions and billions of infrastructure that need to be spent, trillions, trillions, yeah. trillions, yep. uh, to get to the amount that power can be produced by natural gas. That's really, really cheap and, and literally at our feet available. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's not going away. 
uh, and the conversion of that to cleaner energy to, you know, granted, you still have to burn diesel vehicles, but the evolution of cleaner, it's going to happen. So we're, we're going to be here for a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at least my lifetime. Uh, and I'm assuming you guys young lifestyle as well, lifetime yeah. as well. So uh, I don't yeah. think it's going away. People want the cheapest, most abundant form of energy and they're right. not willing to pay more for it. And that's I think right. that's what everybody's overlooking is that there's also, a lot of reliabilities, a, a huge lot of virtue well, so. signaling that, ah, oh, we want this, we want this, but you're not willing to pay more for it. No, and I and you said it earlier, Carl, that there's a lot of noise, misconceptions, and misunderstanding about yeah. it, unfortunately. And, you know, it, it it needs to come from other people besides you and I. Yeah. I. I like you being contrarian. I'm very contrarian. But then when I start talking up when I'm at my place in Colorado and visiting with people there, it's like, oh, well, you're in that industry, Peter. We, yeah, we because they, 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 they assume a bias, which, fair. It's yeah. fair to it's have fair, a bias. It's yeah. fair. But also, it, it's... Like I, I deal with this a lot online. They're like, oh, you're just biased. You're from oil and gas. And I'm like, look, I think out of anyone, I look at it as an objective. Like I, I question all assumptions. But it's funny because I've been talking to a lot of climate tech founders and they're smart people and they understand like, hey, look, this has to be done in a pragmatic manner. And so we're actually going to start creating content with a lot of those climate tech founders as well, talking about these issues. And I think that it's just an obligation of people on both sides to have conversations that are factually based and present good information to people outside of the industry. So I think that, um, you know, it, it can never come from guys like you or I, but <laughs> you know, what can you do? Yeah. I, I'm not going to stop. Yeah. Okay. It's still going to keep coming. Yeah. Uh, yes. They, they believe I have ulterior motives. Yeah. Fine. I'm, I, I can live with that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I just want a factual, pragmatic discussion. Yeah. If someone, and, and look, I'm, I'm not opposed to renewables. I, I, matter of fact, I'm, I'm, pro believing it can happen. Yeah. But I'm also re realizing it's going to be an evolution, not a revolution. And it yeah. takes time and people just don't realize what it takes to power the world. I really and, like that tagline. Yeah, It's correct. an evolution, not a revolution. Took 20 years of lip service to talk about digitization. Yeah. Imagine how long it is going <laughs> to be to transfer onto entirely new forms of energy. Yeah. Yeah. This one might be different, Jake, in that when you think about the current political party group mm. who are stating trillions of dollars of investment, tax breaks, tax cuts, those kinds of things. Uh, that drives people to invest. Yeah. We'll so definitely I, think, make I, think, I think there's a potential sea change, potential, but it still takes time yep. you know, to, to go through it. it it's, it's sort of like drilling an oil and gas well. You've got to find the land. You've got to figure out if there's oil and gas or there or not. Then you've got to get the land. You've got to lease it. You've got to get the permits. You've got to do all these things. Same thing takes place in renewables. Mm -hmm. You got to hook it up to the grid. You got to do all those things. There's even an added element of that. You got to be closer to the source because the further you get away with power generation, the more you lose it. Yep. Uh, and so a lot of people don't realize that uh, that you know the places you want to put wind farms typically aren't close enough to really feed a grid to the level that you want to, and you've got to optimize that. All and gas, you can transport it. Electricity doesn't try to transport quite as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because just because of the infrastructure. Yep. So, Peter, this has been. An excellent discussion. I'm sure we could have like three more podcasts. Just we say, we say, we, 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 he tweeted last time, hey, Kirk was in the top three podcasts. Well, now yeah, Peter's in the top three podcasts. Setting, I don't know who we're keeping out. pretty but, high bar here with oh, wow. the uh, recent podcasts that we're shooting. But if someone's listening to this one, if you guys are interested in data integration, um, we'll put the link in our um, show notes or you can reach out to me. I had a couple of people reach out um, wanting contact information for data integration today on Twitter. So you can always send me a message and I'll put you guys in contact. Um, but Peter, if um, you know someone is interested, if they have a startup, you know, you guys are setting up the fund and you're investing in startups, um, you know, how can people reach out to you guys on that front? They can email me at pbernard at datagration.com. Perfect. Uh, I, I get lots and lots of LinkedIn's lately. <laughs> I become very popular. Yeah. Not that I wasn't before, but even more so. Yeah. You're LinkedIn and famous become, now. Yeah, yes, yeah, famous. Quite a bit. Po podcast and LinkedIn and uh, webcams, but everything. Yeah. All, yeah. All, it's all good. Don't get me wrong. Got to get you on Twitter now. Yeah. Yeah. There you yeah, go. Have to. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't see my face, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, so, but yeah, we. We're welcoming. I, I have a real good friend who dropped me something this morning. He, he lives in London uh, and dropped me a note and said, hey, you need to meet this guy. You need to do this. I hear you all investing. So it's, it's word of mouth. Yeah. And so our doors open. We'd love to look at technology investments that you guys work on or whatever. Yep. Uh, we have lots of people who want to put money to work. They trust our intuition, drive, and experience. And they want to see another RSEG. 
Yeah. Yep. Uh, and they, the people do. invested in data integration <laughs> want to invest in more like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and subsidiaries of that. So uh, we have a lot of people who are excited about investing and like working with technical, passionate, driven people yep. like ourselves. That yep. gets me. That gets me pumped up. So, man, I'm glad you came on the show. Thanks for making the time to do it. Oh, it's been great. I appreciate you can tell talking about the story. Yeah. yeah. And uh, love the history and love, love love the area I worked in my whole career. No regrets. Yep. And I encourage people to think about it openly. You know, I know it's a tough industry, but uh, it's not for the faint of heart. But if you can wear it out, uh, it won't wear you out and you can be successful in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love it. Absolutely. This was fantastic. Uh, so now Peter set such a high bar that I need more Peters out there. So maybe we just start interviewing everybody who's in your investment group. I don't know. <laughs> Peters, Kurt. Yeah, like we, got a, we got a high high bar to maintain. We, we went to get David Wesson on, who's obviously, he's one of Peter's buddies we were talking about before we got on the mic. Um, yeah. But uh, Colin got COVID during that time. And so I was like, I don't want you to get COVID. So he Sorry, went back guys. to Aspen and we have been able to get him on since. But he's ready. He's ready. And he said when, when he's in Houston at the right time, he said he'd love to do it. So I don't want to speak for him, but he told me he would. Awesome. We'll, we'll make, make that happen, happen too. We'll it. It'll be a good time. So David will reset the bar. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right, guys. Uh, take two seconds. Please leave us a uh, rating review. Share this with your friends. We'll catch you guys in the next episode. Come, 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 come.